1995, which seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like yesterday in one sense. I think 95 was when I first started really realizing there was a world out there. But anyway, in 1995, NASA began a space exploration program called Mars Surveyor. They mapped out a bunch of missions they wanted to take, send satellites and probes to our nearest interstellar neighbor. And uh, so they set out sending these satellites to measure the weather on Mars and to take analysis of the soil and to map the surface and to gauge the atmosphere. And the second one they launched, they launched on December 11th, 1998. It was about a six-foot-tall, five-foot-wide satellite they called Mars Climate Orbiter. And I think, you know, the rocket scientist somewhere dreamed it up, and then Lockheed Martin constructed it. Uh, it, costed, it cost $190 million in 1998 dollars. It's like $5 billion in 2022 dollars. I'm just kidding. I think it's like $290 million in today's money. And it was perfectly designed for the mission. Had all the right instruments and everything. And so they launch it, and up it goes, and it travels through outer space for 10 months and finally arrives at its destination. Mars. And so on September 23rd, the scientists in Houston get ready for orbital entry, where the satellite's going to adjust its course, turn on its air brakes, and guide itself into the orbit of Mars, where it will stay and observe the climate. Only something went wrong. And when it started its descent, they lost all communication with it. Nine o'clock in the morning, Earth time. Lost communication and never heard from it again. They think maybe it bounced off of Mars's atmosphere and now is in some kind of loop around the sun, or maybe it went in too steep and just kind of burned up. They don't know. But they undertook this investigation. They tried to get to the bottom of it. They still had a couple more missions in the program, and so they wanted to learn everything they could from the error. And you know what they discovered? Of all the things that went right, from its launch and its travel through space, arriving at its destination, one little thing went wrong. When Lockheed Martin started designing the software that was going to communicate the computers in Houston with the Mars Climate Orbiter in space, they had measured everything in U.S. customary units. Pounds. How much does it weigh? Pounds. And NASA measured everything in metric, kilograms. And so when it came time for the computers in Houston to communicate with the satellite in space, they were speaking different languages. And it couldn't calculate the exact angle it needed to descend into orbit. And it was lost forever. And of all the things that went right, one little computer error that could have been easily fixed doomed the Mars Climate Orbiter. $190 million for the satellite, a total of $500 million between the program and the launch and everything that went into it. Cost us all, taxpayers, tons of money because of one tiny detail. 
This morning, we are concluding our series through Mark 7 and 8 called The Unexpected Kingdom. And if you've been with us the past six weeks, you know a lot about Jesus. And if I gave you the quiz that's set up for this series to see how well you listened to the sermons and assimilated the information, I think you'd get a lot of things right. But there's one thing. If you get wrong, we'll doom everything. One detail, one fact about Jesus, and you're out of the kingdom. That's what we see in this passage. Jesus' interaction with Peter on the way to Caesarea Philippi makes it clear that there's one thing that matters when it comes to following Christ. The lightning rod is suffering. So this morning, as we work our way through this pivotal passage, I want to show you how Jesus intends to bring the blessings of his kingdom through suffering and sacrifice. And there is no other way. There's no other way. The blessings of the kingdom come through suffering and sacrifice. Now, this is a wonderful passage. As you're reading it, I hope you get the same feel I do. It's just a really a hinge passage in the entire Gospel of Mark. There are 16 chapters. Here we are at the very conclusion of chapter 8. That means we are halfway through Mark's Gospel. First half of Mark's Gospel is totally consumed with who Jesus is. Who is he? Mark says he's the Christ, the Son of God, and everywhere he goes, he preaches the nearness of God's kingdom and demonstrates his authority to make it happen through miracles and powerful teaching, through exorcisms of demons. Everywhere he goes, crowds appear, following him, wanting to get in on the blessings of the kingdom for themselves. At the same time, of course, there's growing conflict with the religious leaders who start to understand that maybe Jesus' authority is going to subvert theirs. And so they start to oppose him, even plotting how they might take him down. And in the background are the disciples, always confused, following him from place to place, carrying out their assigned tasks as he gives them to him, but never quite understanding who Jesus is. They even say, when he calms the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, who is this? But here they know, you are the Christ. And for the rest of the book, Jesus is going to be on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to die on the cross. And his disciples have to come to grips with this, who he is and what his death is going to mean, and they're not quite prepared for it. Jesus left Bethsaida, where he was last week, where he healed the blind man, and, and took off on a journey 25 miles. When I was reading the commentaries, they say 25 miles north of Bethsaida, about a one day's walk. I think about that. That's like, man, that's, you're booking it. 25 miles up and down on those dusty paths. If you can do that in a day, depends how long you count your day. Maybe it's a 10-hour day. I don't have it in me to walk for 10 hours, I don't think. But they did. That was their normal way of life. And as they went, they talked to each other. And Jesus asked his disciples to let him in on the public perception of him. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? The disciples answer him, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. I don't know if you remember several weeks ago and we saw Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. John the Baptist come back from the dead to persecute me, to make my life miserable. 
And people saw in Jesus what they had seen in John the Baptist. John appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and, and people came out to him. He was a powerful preacher. He, he lived a way that was consistent with the word he proclaimed. God's judgment's coming soon. Repent. Some people said, you're Elijah. Elijah is the great prophet of the Old Testament. We talked a little bit about him last week where he had his battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, Elijah performed incredible miracles. But for the Jews of the first century, the thing that they loved about Elijah was the fact that at the end of his life, he didn't die, but God had descended from heaven in a chariot of fire and had taken him up to heaven again. And so the Jews believed that at the very end of time, when God was ready to bring his kingdom, he was going to send Elijah back to earth as a forerunner of that coming kingdom. And so people saw Jesus and they said, man, this guy is obviously heaven sent. He's proclaiming the nearness of God's kingdom. This is Elijah that we've been waiting for. Other people said, you're one of the prophets, which means that they heard Jesus' message and they recognized in it a ring of divine truth that he's speaking God's word to us just like the prophets of old. God is speaking to us again. I mean, in each case, the people recognized that Jesus was a significant spiritual person, somebody worth listening to, somebody with insight into what God was doing in their day. And they loved him and respected him for it. They followed him everywhere they went. And yet that wasn't the real question that Jesus was after. He wasn't interested in what the outsiders knew about him. He wanted to know who the Insiders thought he was. Who do you say that I am? I want to show you what Peter got right. When Jesus asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter nailed it. You are the Christ. Peter understood Jesus' mission. He knew what he'd come to do. He knew that who he was. You are the Christ. I don't know if you're the type of person who highlights or underlines things in your Bible. This would be a good thing to highlight or underline. You are the Christ. It's unprecedented in Mark's gospel. He begins at the very beginning, Mark 1.1. He says, this is the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He publicly identifies him for all the readers in his day all the way down to ours. We know who Jesus is from the beginning because Mark lets us in on it. Then he records for us the words of the Father at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Mark gives us the insight into who God says he is. Later, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Capernaum, and a demon-possessed man comes and falls down before him, and Jesus tells him to be silent and come out of him because the demon starts screaming out, We know who you are. You are the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. All along, Mark is giving us clues about who Jesus is. But this is the first time a human being lands on the right answer in Mark's gospel. Everybody says, who is this? Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's one of the prophets. But Peter gets it right. He understands Jesus' identity and his mission perfectly. You are the Christ. I love this because last week we saw how Jesus has to give us it has to do his supernatural work of opening up our blind eyes. 
And that's exactly what Peter has. Peter goes from confusion about who Jesus is to crystal clarity, just like that. And we know that it's the work of God because in Matthew 16, when Matthew records this, uh, this scene, he gives us a little more detail. And he says that Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. See, when Peter was asked, Who do you say I am? He had the right answer. He saw it with crystal clarity. You are the Christ. Can you imagine what it must have been like to finally stumble onto that insight? We don't know how long the 12 have been following Jesus. Some people think maybe as much as a year by this point. And every day, Peter is taking in the sights and sounds of Jesus' ministry. He's observing his interaction with people, absorbing his teaching, trying it on for size himself and carrying out the tasks assigned to him. And finally, after he had a year's worth of evidence... He's able to hold it out and weigh it, to assess it. And by the work of God in him, he's able to draw a conclusion. I finally got it. I finally understand. You are the Christ. Have you ever done that? Have you ever honestly taken into consideration everything you've heard about Jesus, everything you've experienced and assessed it. Now, Peter does what I think every person has to do sooner or later. They're called to the carpet, and the spotlight's on them. And Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And there, you know, some questions, there are no right or wrong answers. But this is one of those questions that does have a wrong answer, and it does have a right answer. And for a little while, you can hang behind what the crowd says. You know, there's some anonymity in public perception. Well, people say maybe you're John the Baptist. People say you're Elijah. People say you're one of the prophets. And maybe as they were saying that, they were looking real close at Jesus' facial expressions to see if any one of those was right. But eventually, he turns the question to Peter, and he has to stick his neck out there. He has to take a stab at it. He has to draw a conclusion based on the information he possessed. You've got to get this right when it comes to Jesus. Now, people today say that Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever lived. You ever heard that? The greatest teacher who ever lived. Jesus is an example of perfect sacrifice that everybody should follow. He's a powerful prophet speaking truth to power, standing up to empire. None of those are it, you know? None of those get there. The only right answer, you are the Christ. To deny that is to deny his individuality, his uniqueness, the power of his person. And that's where Peter gets. You are the Christ. Peter got it right. But there's something Peter got wrong. As soon as he says you're the Christ, Jesus warned him not to tell anybody about him. And then he goes into this extended teaching. 
Mark says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now this is the first of three predictions Jesus gives about his death. And they all come true. But the disciples never really come to grips with them when they first come out of his mouth. Mark says he spoke plainly. He spoke boldly. And yet they're confused. I mean, just think about it. There are really four parts to what Jesus taught his disciples. He says it's necessary that the Son of Man must suffer. Think about that, what that means for Jesus' disciples. Jesus' favorite term for himself was the Son of Man. And so he tells them, guys, it's not possible for me to do what the Father has called me to do unless I suffer. There's necessity to it. There's obligation. I must suffer. And he says, number two, he's going to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now, this, this is wild. Because it'd be one thing if he said, it's necessary that I suffer much at the hands of an unruly mob. It's likely that when I show up to make my kingdom known, people are going to throw rotten tomatoes at me as I walk down the street. It's likely they're going to yell at me and spit at me. That'd be fine. An angry mob is one thing. But when he says the elders, chief priests, and scribes, he's talking about respectable people. The leaders of the nation. They're not going to rally the troops and round him up. They're going to go to the Roman governing officials and ask for permission. They're going to get the governing authorities to carry it out. Then he says, number three, it's necessary that I die. And then on the third day to rise again. Now, for a man who just said, you're the Christ, Jesus' teaching must have come as a shock. But as we walk our way through it, to us it's pretty unoffensive. It's necessary that he be, the Son of Man suffer much and be rejected and die and after three days rise from the grave. I say it's unoffensive because that's the heartbeat of the gospel. That's what you and I talk about week in and week out. We know Jesus died. But it was offensive to Peter. And that's why he rebuked him. The, the Greek word literally means to verbally correct someone or something. And I know you see the scene in your mind. Jesus says this, and then Peter goes over and he says, Hey, come here. And he grabs him by the shoulder and takes him to the side, and he said, Hey, I know you got caught up in the moment, but what you just said was crazy. <laughs> Matthew says, Peter said, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid. This is never going to happen to you. Why did Peter react that way? Maybe you've wondered that yourself. It wasn't because he misunderstood or misheard him. It wasn't like Jesus was speaking in parables. And so he, vague, he, he vaguely described what might happen, and he was challenging his disciples to penetrate into the mystery and to think deeply about it, turn it over in their mind until it broke open and they could understand it. Mark literally says he spoke plainly. He just laid it out there for him in black and white. Peter couldn't claim that he was confused or that he misunderstood or did I hear you right? No, you heard me right. 
The problem was Peter refused to believe that someone called the Christ could ever suffer like Jesus said he would. God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. See, Peter got the mission of Jesus right. You're the Christ. But he totally whiffed when it came to his methods. He got the method wrong. And to understand that, you have to understand what Peter meant when he said you're the Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, this word shows up again and again. Not Christ, but the Hebrew word Messiah, which means an anointed person. And in the Old Testament, three different types of people were anointed. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. And in each case, the Hebrew people had a, a typical person to fill in the blanks. They had for their prophet, Moses, the man who ascended the mountain of God and brought down the law. And Moses said that one day God would raise up from among you one of your brothers to be a prophet. Listen to him. They had a priest, Samuel. They had a king, David. Each one anointed, chosen by God, and set apart for a very specific task. And in their imagination, stoked by the prophets, they began to hope for a king like David who would one day rule over the people again and reinstitute obedience to God's law and bring God's blessings for them all. Between the closing of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, this hope caught fire. One religious text from the period known as the Psalms of Solomon says this, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, in wisdom and in righteousness, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their heart. That's a heavy metal Messiah. Purging Jerusalem of Gentiles, smashing the nations with a rod of iron. That's who Peter was hoping for. And when he took in everything he'd seen about Jesus, he allowed himself to hope that maybe the Messiah had finally come. You're the Christ. Here's Jesus, going to go into Jerusalem and kick out the Romans, purge the Gentiles from the inheritance. That's what Peter hoped for. And then Jesus starts saying something like, it's necessary that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to die. Whoa. No, Lord. God forbid. This will never happen to you. Jesus' statement is the heart of the gospel, and so it's something we hold dear, but it was a scandalous offense to Peter. It was a contradiction to everything he had come to believe about Jesus. And so he stood in the way and rebuked him. And then don't you love it? Jesus turns the tables and does some rebuking of his own. He says, turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. See, it wasn't just that 
Peter had gotten Jesus' method wrong. Like, he is going to bring his kingdom, but it's not going to be the way he thought it was. But Peter had adopted a satanic opposition to God's plan. He had stood opposed to everything God was doing in Jesus. He thought the Messiah was going to bring his kingdom with power, by the sword and a rod of iron. When in reality, Jesus is trying to get him to see that God's plan is totally different. That God's bringing the blessings of his kingdom through suffering and sacrifice. Jesus' suffering. Jesus' sacrifice. That's the only way, Peter, that I'm going to be able to fulfill the mission the Father has given me if I suffer and die and rise again. And of course, after all that happens, after he rises again, he's going to meet with his disciples, and he's going to open up to them the Old Testament and explain to them why it's so. He's going to show them passages, I'm sure, like Isaiah 53, which they hadn't quite assimilated into their hope for a Messiah. But we look back on with clarity and understand that having the veil of our eyes removed by the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus clearly in it. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. By his wounds, we're healed. But Peter couldn't see it. For now, his sight was returning to him only gradually. He's like the blind man. I see, but it's like men walking around like trees. I see that you're the Christ, but I don't fully comprehend everything that you're trying to do. And aren't we like him? We say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus suffered and died. And then real quickly, we get on through that. We start talking about the resurrection and how he's exalted at God's right hand and he's going to come and establish his kingdom and we're going to live with him forever in mansions on streets of gold. It's going to be great. What we end up doing is following in Peter's footsteps and projecting all our hopes and desires and dreams onto him. Passing quickly over the cross, we get to all the blessings and how Jesus is going to make us happy. He's going to put back the pieces of my broken life and make it where I never hurt again. What we want him to do is we want him to just take his big divine rubber stamp and let us present to him our plans and the things that we hope to achieve in our life and just, yeah, I'll sign off on that. Looks real good. What kind of Christ are you in, looking for? You, you know, how, how Peter would it be best? If, since you know how I need to carry out my mission, why don't you just tell me what you want me to do? But that's not the method Jesus uses. He brings God's blessing through suffering and sacrifice, and he tells the crowd, he, apparently Peter's interaction with Jesus sort of typifies the way people react to him. And so he sort of sets Peter on the right path. Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on man's desires, not on God's plan. And then he calls everybody in close. Mark says, calling the crowd to himself, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is the principle that Peter missed. He got everything else right. He understood who Jesus was. He understood the mission that he had been given from the Father. But he missed this one thing. He missed the method 
And apparently we're at risk of doing the same. And so Jesus just lays it out there in black and white. He principalizes Peter's error. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Think about it. Deny himself. Deny herself. Is self-denial, would you say that's one of your favorite things to do? Or No, I don't, nobody likes that self-denial thing. We want what we want. But Jesus says if you want to follow him, if you want to be with him as a disciple, you must deny yourself. And so we set about to do that. We lay aside all the things we really enjoy in life and try to take on the attitude of a John the Baptist ascetic, trying to deny ourselves the little guilty pleasures we enjoy, you know. We deny ourselves that we give up chocolate. But you know that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about giving up chocolate. He's talking about giving up control. Giving your whole self. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He says, if anybody wants to be with me, you're going to have to let me take the lead. That's what Jesus is after from his people. You want to be with me, Peter? You want to follow me on the path to blessedness in the kingdom? Deny yourself. Let me have control. Take up your cross. Now, the cross is a beautiful symbol of Christ's suffering and sacrifice, the very suffering and sacrifice that was necessary to bring about the blessings of the kingdom that you and I want. But we need to take away the symbolic value of the cross for a second and really just consider what it was in itself. I mean, it was the most terrible form of torture the Romans knew. They reserved its use only for the lowest class of criminals, and they used it to intimidate and humiliate the people they conquered. Jesus could have used any other form of torture, but he chose the worst of the worst. I think if we were going to put it in our vernacular today, the closest thing would be a gas chamber. Willingly walk into the gas chamber for me. I mean, for Peter, you just have to think that he'd seen crucified people before. It wasn't a symbol. It was a real thing. And Jesus said, this is the choice I'm putting before you. If you really want to be my disciple, take up your cross. Willingly carry the symbol of humiliation and follow me to go where I go and to do what I do. It's the same words that Peter had heard from Jesus when he was in the boat with his brother. And Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee sees them there mending their nets and he says, follow me. You really want to follow me? You're not following me into a life of untold blessings and good fortune. You're following me to death. That's the stark choice that Jesus sets before Peter and before us. What do we really want? 
Are we willing to use the method he says? He says the blessings of his kingdom come through suffering and sacrifice. And he lays it out in four motivations. In verse 35, 36, 37, and 38. Verse 35, he says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. It's like he sees directly into our hearts. And he knows that as soon as we hear him say, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, we start to rationalize it. We start to try to hedge it a little bit. We start to think about what that would look like. If I took my faith in Jesus as seriously as he's talking about here, that means I'd have to give up everything that I find most valuable in life. It means I might have to rethink my habits and my friendships and the things I do for fun. The things that constitute our life. My life is over. He says, it's fine. Hey, look, you can set out trying to achieve all that, trying to gain those things that you think is going to make your life valuable. But in the process, you're going to lose everything that means the most. You're going to lose your life. But the people who willingly give up everything to follow me will find it. He goes on to drill down deeper. What does it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? I think what he's thinking about is trying to get Peter and us to recognize that we're spiritual beings at our heart. We're souls, embodied in flesh, but we're eternal, made to be with God. And the worst thing that could happen to us is that we set out to get the world and achieve it. But we get everything we've ever wanted in life, but find that the very thing we were created for is beyond our grasp. And then he says in verse 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is one of the hardest sayings, I think, in the Gospels. Because who hasn't ever felt a little tinge of shame being identified as a Christian. I know our, our students probably know this really well. To be called a, a name because you're following Christ, maybe you know it too. Maybe people you work with remind you that as a Christian you always act holier than thou, like you're better than me or something. And so sometimes it's just kind of easier to keep your faith to yourself, to not broadcast it publicly that you're a Christian. Let's just fly under the radar here and get through the situation because if they knew that I walk with Christ, they make my life miserable. And Jesus says, hey, listen, if you're more worried about your reputation with your unbelieving friends than you are with your reputation before me, I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come with the angels and the glory of my Father. What's really important to you? I mean, this is at root what Jesus is trying to get us to think about. He wants us to think about our heart, who we are, what we want. Do we really want the blessings of the kingdom? If so, it comes by way of suffering and sacrifice. I think Paul captures this beautifully in Philippians 3, when he's talking about all the wonderful things he'd accomplished in his life in Judaism, how he'd moved up in the ladder of his career, 
how he had a reputation before his friends as somebody who really cared about God. And then he tells the Philippians, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Can you say that? I mean, maybe let me read it again and ask yourself, could I say that? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Listen, I, I just want to land on this. I, this is the whole point of Mark 7 and 8. You've seen Jesus' miracles, unexpected mercy to people who don't deserve it. You've seen him lay his hands on people and heal their, heal their sight, open their plugged up ears. And you can get a lot right about him based on those stories. Jesus was a powerful miracle worker. Jesus was doing God's work when he was on earth. You could even get to where Peter was. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But I guarantee you, you'll miss out on the blessings of the kingdom if you don't internalize this. That all that God wants to do through us, he does by way of our willing self-sacrifice, of taking up the cross and following Jesus, of laying down our rights and our definition of what would make for a happy life and following Jesus wherever he leads. That's why I wonder, can you really sing this song honestly? Wherever he leads, I'll go. Would you go where Peter went? To a cross. Jesus eventually has to tell Peter, look, Peter, when you were a young man, you dressed yourself. But one day they're going to bind you by your hands and they're going to take you to your death. And they did. And Peter had to think about that, had to witness the suffering of Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection before he got to a place where he could write in his own letter in 1 Peter chapter 4 to a Christian group suffering incredible persecution and tell them, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Of course, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? 
And if it's with great difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator to do what's right. And friends, I don't know what specific details of our life will allow us to understand the truth of these passages. I hope we never have to suffer too much. But God brings the blessings of his kingdom through sacrifice and suffering. If we want to experience the fullness of life with Christ, we better learn it. So as we close this morning, I would challenge you. What prevents you from following Christ on the hard path of discipleship? What things come to mind when you think about denying yourself and taking up your cross? What preconceptions, what desires and dreams do you project onto Jesus? Will you join me in repenting of those this morning? Let's pray.